Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. This week, we're setting sail for the Roman province of Britannia. Hadrian's Wall is the largest archaeological feature remaining from Roman Britain, a 73-mile line of fortifications stretching from the River Tyne on the east coast to the Solway Firth on the west. Building was begun by the Emperor Hadrian in 122 AD during a visit to this remote, unruly corner of his empire. On his orders, work began replacing the existing road with a vast ditch, stone or turf wall, with watchtowers and forts, where crossings were located at regular distances. Astonishingly, only 5% has been excavated so far, so new finds and evidence are unearthed surprisingly often. In this episode, we follow in the footsteps of a brilliant young general making his way from Rome to take up his post as governor of Britain in 130 AD, Sextus Julius Severus, the first of Hadrian's best generals. Our navigator on this travel through time is Bronwyn Riley, a historian who traced this journey in her rigorously researched yet highly readable book, Journey to Britannia. Bronwyn Riley is a writer, editor and divisor of historical and literary journeys in Britain, Byzantium and beyond. She is a director of the Transylvanian Book Festival. Her latest book, Journey to Britannia, From the Heart of Rome to Hadrian's Wall, AD 130, is out now in paperback. Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, Bronwyn. Hello. Well, I'm excited this week because we are going back to a period of history that we haven't visited for a while on Travels Through Time, and that is the Roman Empire. And we're going to be talking about an incredible journey that um, a couple of young generals, were they, or soldiers? Well, it was a new governor of Roman Britain. That's right. And the people that he either accompanied him or who were going out at the same time um, to help him. So we're going to talk about their journey from Rome to Hadrian's Wall which was, of course, the frontier, the north-western frontier of the Roman Empire at this point. And I'd like to ask you to start with about your own personal relationship with Hadrian's Walks. I believe you live in that part of the country. I do. I, I now live in Cumbria, so not very far away from Hadrian's Wall. But my, I suppose my relationship with Roman Britain really began when I was working at English Heritage and I had the lovely job there of running the guidebooks programme. Although I was a classicist by education, all my interest in the classical world was really in the Mediterranean and the eastern provinces. And I thought before I in fact, moved up here that Britain was rather muddy. Really, as the Romans viewed Britain at the time, that it was cold and gloomy and misty. And that the cities and provinces of the Mediterranean orbit were that much more glamorous and intact. In fact, all my travels had been far away in the Mediterranean and, and in Romania, which we might talk about, 
and I must say to my shame, I'd rather shunned Raymond Britton. But when I started to work for English Heritage, I was tasked with commissioning an entirely new guidebooks programme. And among um, the many sites in the care of English Heritage, there are lots of Roman sites all over England, but particularly on Hadrian's Wall is, is one of the jewels of our portfolio. And it was only then really that I saw how absolutely fascinating Roman British history was in, in comparison to the rest of the empire, but also in terms of what remains and what doesn't. And so it was then on my travels round England and up to Hadrian's Wall that I began to think about what the travels of all people who had come over to Britain to serve in the province, either as officials, as soldiers, as merchants, um, or as slaves, what might their, their journeys have been and what might they have made of Britain? And if somebody today wanted to go and visit Hadrian's Wall, which particular bit would you recommend? Oh, that's that's such a difficult question. Two bits. <laughs> well, I think the good thing is now that it's very easy to um, travel across Hadrian's Wall and it's an absolutely marvellous journey. And so I would start in the West. If you have two days, I think you can really see most of the of the top sites. So you need to go to Carlisle to Tally House Museum. They have a wonderful Roman gallery and, and lots of artefacts on the western side of the wall. Bad Oswald is, is one of my favourite sites because it had a contingent of Dacians with all sorts of exciting evidence who came from what's now Romania. And Housestead is probably the most spectacular fort on the wall because of its position so high up with incredible views north and south. And it's it's I think it's actually the most intact auxiliary fort anywhere in the northern empire northwest empire that is very spectacular um but then the east um eastern side has all sorts of delights so chester's roman fort where there's cavalry cohort again with a fantastic um 19th century museum and then over right to the time and i think it's it's rather wonderful to be able to travel from right from the west coast where Hadrian's Wall start, started. That's that's one of the billion dollar questions, whether it started in the West or the East, or perhaps people started at both ends and then and then met in the middle and, and to come out at the time and uh, at Wall's End, um, which also has a sort of wonderfully excavated site. Finderlander, that really is extraordinary. The excavation programme there is just outstanding. I spoke to Andrew Burley actually last week. I went to Finderlander he was saying that the, the amount of data that they've got from that site, from the excavations that have taken place really in the last, well, in the last 50 years, but really spectacularly in the last 30 since it's become a trust, they just outweigh pretty much everything else that's going on at the moment. They've got an amazing, amazing set of data for um, the northwestern provinces. I was very interested to discover that only 5% of it has actually been properly excavated. And one of the things that came across very strongly in your book was how it's such an exciting um, area of study because people are still discovering new things all the time. And um, I wanted you to just talk briefly about the tablets that were discovered recently. In the very early 1970s, Robin Burley 
who was the son of the person who'd, who'd actually acquired the site um, when it came up for sale in the 1920s with the express purpose of excavating it. And thank goodness um, it was Robin Burley who um, held this, what I imagine just a sort of scrappy piece of wood that had been in the mud for 2,000 years, and he recognised it for what it was. There's actually a wonderful quote of him saying the most exciting thing that he'd ever discovered. He couldn't believe what he saw when he saw the tiny bits of writing. And thank goodness he rushed it to Durham, to colleagues there where it was conserved. It had to be kept wet to preserve the writing. And then painstakingly over over years, um, the tablets, which there are now 2,000, I think, at least have been discovered, have been deciphered. And that's a, that's an, an epic um, story in itself. Uh, what kind of information do they hold? Information of daily life on uh, on the northwestern frontier. So there's all sorts of things. I think one of the most famous ones now is the lovely um, birthday invitation from the commanding officer's wife which she writes to another fellow officer's wife just along the wall and says, oh, please, please, I'd love you to come to my birthday to celebrate. It's so touching. Uh, she's got a secretary to write the bulk of the letter, but then she just signs it off, um, the sort of equivalent of love, love from Lepidina um, in her own hand. It's just very touching. There are also shopping lists, which are very intriguing. So, so people are... are, are writing to ask to various people to bring supplies from London and say things like ingredients for recipes and things that they just can't obtain up here on the frontier. At the time that the letters were being written in the early first century, um, a cohort of Batavians, so from what is now roughly Holland, um, was stationed there. And then there's a little note in, on one of the tablets saying, that these ingredients for or for a Batavian recipe. So it's like they they want to um, <laughs> keep the sort of memory that their own their own home cooking, as it were, right far away from home. And there are also lists or letters um, writing. We don't know exactly whether it's writing home to mum or writing to other colleagues saying, "Please, could you send me some socks and underpants." I've run out because sort of clearly these things well clothes were so expensive and so so absolutely time consuming to to create that they had to be they cherished. You couldn't just run along to the local shop and get some socks or order them online. So you had to order them by a, a wooden writing tablet and, and send them to um whoever you knew might have a supply. So there are also letters about the skip which gives us just snippets about the state of the roads, for example, so saying, oh, I'm sorry, I can't come for that consignment because the roads are so bad and, and the bullet carts maybe wouldn't be able to get them um, along the roads. They, they are absolutely wonderful. And they also allow us, and what's, what's helped actually us able to understand them is that there's sort of amazing, the, the other places, Egypt, where there's the weather conditions are obviously entirely different. And so the dry conditions have helped preserve lots of 
writing papyrus. I think there are many papyrus there, which give a give a wonderful sort of counterbalance to what's happening in the Northwestern Empire. Yeah, it's so unusual, isn't it, to have those little pieces of evidence of just everyday life, just the sort of humdrum run of the mill. And one of the other things that you mentioned there, and I know we're going to talk a, a bit more about it later on, is the astonishing range of nationalities and people that were serving up there and living up there. Um, So can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think perhaps we don't imagine that when we think about Roman Britain. I mean, you think about Romans, but of course, you know, in those days, a Roman was a Spaniard or someone from Dalmatia or... So can you tell us a little bit about the kind of people that were living and working up there? Well, the the legions were composed of, of Roman citizens. So you had to have citizenship to be a legionary at that time. And that didn't necessarily mean that you you had to be born in, in Italy or in, in Rome. You could have citizenship and, and be a Spaniard, for example, or from North Africa. But there also the legions, there were three legions in Britain at the time. And they were supported by auxiliary troops, of whom there been up to maybe up to ten thousand personnel up on Hadrian's Wall and in the surrounding sort of military zone around it. And they were made up. They didn't have to be citizens, and they were made up people from all over the empire. And the Romans had a practice of, of when they conquered a province, they would round up all the young men. Who, who were just sort of were battle ready because they'd just been fighting the Romans. Um, and they often had very different techniques and different weapons to the Romans, which could come in very handy when fighting other, other enemies, I must say. And they would round them up, they would train them um, and discipline them in the ways of the, of the Roman army and then send them as far away from their home province as possible. See, that's what happened, for example, after Trajan's conquest of Dacia. He sent soldiers, Dacians, to Egypt, we know, but a lot of evidence from there, but also probably to Britain pretty soon after the conquest. They were certainly there in the 120s and and afterwards, right up into the 3rd century, there's evidence for them. But there weren't just, of course, Dacians, there were Syrians there, there were people from Pannonia, which is Hungary... There were people from Egypt and North Africa. There's a lovely altar which was erected at Maryport, which is just south of Hadrian's Wall on the Cumbrian coast now. And that's dedicated by an officer who was from, I think, what's now Algeria. And he dedicates it to Fortune the Homebringer and says very proudly that he's a a councillor in his hometown in Algeria. I think there's a kind of, you can detect a sort of sense of possible homesickness, longing to to come back to for, fortune, the homebringer, and and rather than than write about the his position as an officer, he's he's writing about his position as a town councillor back back home. And there are all sorts of little little snippets that we have, um, both in inscriptions and altar votive offerings, that and the letters where you can just capture this sense of like the Batavian recipes of, of people still still thinking about homeland. That's so poignant, isn't it? Well, I think, Bronwyn, that I should now ask you the magical question, which is, of course, if you could travel back in time, which year would you like to visit? Well, I would choose AD 130. And I chose this year, not because anything particularly spectacular happened in it, but because 
um, for Britain, which is incredibly rare, we actually know something about the person, the new governor who was going to rule it for, for the next few years and about the people who he probably took over there. So the new commanding officer of the 6th Victrix Legion um, in York, based in York, and a man called Minus Agrippa who um, was going to be, or was shortly to be appointed the commander of the British fleet. And the new governor was somebody called Sextus Julius Severus, and he had to travel all the way from the very eastern part of the empire to the west to um, take command of Britain. And how do we know about this? Where's, where's the information coming from? Well, the, the information comes from various sources, which are all pretty scrappy, so that we've got absolutely by chance um, inscriptions from, for example, recording Sextus Julius Severus as the new governor's career, in which it's detailed that he, he's governor of Britain and then he serves as as a general who defeats the Jews in the Bar Kokhba revolt in one three two. And he's recorded he he is as as well as being in, in various building inscriptions um which we find in, in Britain. But he's also recorded as one of the um, best of Hadrian's generals. And do you think Britain, so how would he have viewed that new appointment? Do you think Britain was a, you know, like the, a good appointment or do you think his heart sank and he thought, oh no? Uh, possibly, possibly a mixture of, from, from a sort of personal enjoyment um, perspective. Maybe Britain wasn't the most luxurious of provinces to be going to with the best weather or the best food or, or the most cultivated society. Um, but for um, an ambitious person, it was one of the top postings. Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. Because okay. it had it had three legions, which was a lot of legions at the time. So uh, as governor, and it was an imperial province, so to be governor of Britain meant that you um, answered absolutely to the to the emperor. You were ruling on behalf of the emperor. And you had these three legions to command. And there was quite a lot of trouble in Britain. It's seen as a very troublesome province. But it was so it was hard work, but good for your career. Okay, so it was a big big responsibility. And as you mentioned, Hadrian is emperor. So can you just briefly tell us about about him? What kind of emperor is he? How how long has he been emperor for um at this point? Well he's um He's a very intriguing personality, um, and we could have several podcasts just on on Hadrian. He's been by one thirty. He's um, been emperor. He's um, became emperor in one seventeen. So what's that? What thirteen years or so? And he spent a lot of his reign, much of his reign, traveling. He's been described by um, I can't remember who it was. It's contemporary. Right, I use um, a modern writer as, as a restless emperor because he was always on the move. And indeed, in 130, he spent, well, he spent the winter in Antioch and then in the spring, he sort of moves down to Jerusalem and then he'll end up spending most of the rest of the year in, in Egypt. He's also somebody who's come to Britain. He 
he so he knows Britain personally. He he came to Britain in one two two, so actually exactly one thousand nine hundred years ago, and he made an inspection of the of the legions and of the province. Um, it's thought that there was had probably been some quite serious trouble in Britain before he came, and in fact, it's thought that when when he comes, he I gives that he gives a go ahead for the wall to be built or he lays a foundation stone or in, in summer he he's absolutely oversees this he's responsible for this monument uh, for this massive military installation well he was also a great builder wasn't he he was he was a very great builder and he built all over the empire so at this this time throughout his right, particularly in the in the 120s he is instigating huge projects in Rome in particular, but also all over the rest of time, including in Britain. Okay, great. Well, I think um, let's go to your first scene now. And I believe um, we are at the beginning of the journey. Uh, so we're in Rome. Yes, so Rome at this time is still the absolute centre of the, of the empire, certainly symbolically, although the fact that the emperor himself is not in Rome, um, is, is quite significant. But the, the Senate, the Senate still has, has some power and certainly a great deal of prestige. But if you, if you're a senator, you have to have property, I think up to a third of your property in Italy. I think that's something that Trajan instigated. So there's still a real pull to Rome. You're expected, if you're somebody of any importance or prestige, you're expected to turn up in Rome to sit in the Senate. Hadrian, although he's often travelling, has been building a spectacular palace with 900 rooms or so um, in Tivoli, Tibor. And and certainly some of the sort of richer senators have got property around that, those people who are in, in Hadrian's orbit, including actually Manicus Natalis, who's the rather flashy um, Spaniard who is also coming to Britain in, in 130 with Severus um, to take command of the Sixth Victrix Legion. There were a huge number of, of building projects that Hadrian's instigated in Rome. So it's a busy, it's an incredibly busy, bustling city. It's the biggest city in the empire with an estimated million inhabitants drawn from all over the empire except possibly Britain. There are very, very little evidence for any British people, but um, plenty for people Spain and Greece and Africa, all over the place. And so here we find our two characters um, and they are packing, getting ready for their big journey. Can you tell us a bit about that, about who, who would have been travelling with them? What would they have packed? What would they have done in the days leading up to their departure? Well, there I chose I chose Rome for my for my starting scene, but I just want to say that that Sextus Severus, he's been this governor in Moesia and Ferial, which is, has as its eastern borders the the Black Sea, may have come to Rome if he had property here, but he's not obliged to because he really has to take his leave from the emperor. So he may have actually had to travel down to Antioch to see Hadrian, and then decided to. Travel to Britain um, by other means, maybe maybe along the Danube and up through the northern provinces. 
Um, there are all sorts of different ways of getting to Britain. But I think Manikis Natales, he's the he's the, the um, Spanish probably most certainly travelled from Rome, not only because he had his property here, but also he could have got very easily from between Ostia, which is the um, port of Rome, together with Portus, and perhaps gone to visit his family or estates in Spain on the way to Britain. So I know that you would turn up at the port and you wouldn't necessarily know which ship you were going to be able to travel on or when that ship was going to be leaving. So what would you need to do? Well, Rome, has, we, we talk about Roman, Roman roads, but the fact is that a lot of travelling takes place by ship because it's by far the quickest and cheapest way of getting about. And the Romans have quite a fear of sailing. They're not like natural sailors like the Greeks. It, it sometimes strikes me that this, this fear is a bit like us being a bit scared of flying, that, that there's a sort of spectacular, that if something goes wrong, then it could all end spectacularly. <laughs> and um, and look, you hear lots of accounts and writers being absolutely terrified of being shipwrecked and ending up as food for the fishes, not having a proper burial. So although there's there's this this hesitancy about sailing still, majority of people who are travelling great distances take to ships really rather than by road. So um Severus and his officials and whoever's travelling from Rome would have made their way to the port of Rome, um, which is basically Ostia and it's newer and now much bigger and flashier sort of sister, which is just along the road, which is called Portus, which had been massively expanded by Trajan. So built by Claudius and then and then expanded. And so that's a, a sort of incredible bustling port where all the grain ships from Alexandria, um, from Egypt and, and Africa come into port. Merchant ships from Gaul, from from every every corner really of the of the empire would all come here. And see, so that's where you would you would go and take your ship. So if you were just a sort of common or garden person, um, you wouldn't necessarily be able to buy sort of a ticket and have an assigned ship. So you would um, just go along to the port and see whatever the next ship was sailing to the nearest port that you wanted to go to. And that's because I think just everything's quite unpredictable in terms of sailing. You're absolutely dependent on the stars and the condition of the weather to guide you. And you have to generally try and hug the coast because most ships don't really go very far out to sea because you, one thing, you need fresh water and to take supplies on board. You kind of never quite know which ship is going to be important when. However, if you're an official like Julius Severus, then you will no doubt have ships put at your disposal. And then down down on the dock side, you describe very evocatively in your book that there would have been loads of bars and restaurants and all sorts so, of... Oh, yeah, so all kind of seedy, seedy hangouts um, that you would expect in a, in a port town to service in, in whatever way the, the needs and requirements of, of travellers or people who've been on ship for long periods and then hurrah they they arrive and and need um refreshment but they're also all the the officers of merchants and and the the big ship owners there so it's a place where business and the great warehouses to store all these goods which are coming into rome so marble corn slaves 
animals um, for the for the for the Coliseum coming as far away as Caledonia. Even though that sort of bears and stags were were brought from Scotland um, to meet their unhappy fate in the in the Coliseum. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? <laughs> Being on the dockside and then a load of bears and stags. Probably looking very much the worse for wear after their very long journey. Absolutely. Wonderful. Let's move on now to your second scene, which is a slightly, uh, a very different location. We're going to Egypt um, in the company of the emperor himself. So I imagine that the, the sort of milieu and the means of transport is probably a little bit well, yes, well, uh, the oh, emperor would have absolutely his own ship, with possibly with purple sails or emblazoned with gold letters on it. And it would be as as far as um, travelling by ship could be um, a, a much more comfortable and unluxurious experience than most other travellers who, um, by the way, didn't didn't have their own cabins or anything like that. They would They would have to really just camp on deck and, and make the most of it, bring all their own bedding and, and whatever the journey. That's the kind of average traveller. But we're talking about Hadrian here. So Hadrian is on an official visit and he would have had a very large entourage of of people. Both his his wife is on this trip, Sabina, and also his lover, Antinous. But there would also be slaves and officials and all the all the secretaries who have to keep not only his own personal show on the road, but also communicate between people like Sextus Julius Severus, who have to answer him and um, write daily reports of of what's happening in their various provinces. So it's quite an operation travelling travelling anywhere with the with the emperor. But the emperor, although he will have to attend to business while he's en route, he's also, Egypt is, is really the number one tourist hotspot in the Roman Empire. And there are all sorts of wonderful things to see and things that we also love seeing now, such as the Valley of the Kings. It really made me smile when I heard that there was graffiti in the Valley of the Kings, actually on, th- on some of the tombs from this time. People loved to leave their mark and all sorts of different uh, tourists have been recorded there including sort of a group of I think a group of Greek philosophers were among the people who managed to scratch their names there but also Hadrian um, I think leaves his mark and and some of his entourage and some of the great statue of Memnon which apparently sings at dawn which was a, a great attraction to lots of top officials who came to Egypt and I think various members of the of the party, whether on this this particular trip or others, have left their names, even um, sort of lines of poetry on it. And there's also a place called Crocodopolis, the city of the crocodile, where apparently you can give food or you can pay for um, little bags of food, um, and the priests will feed the crocodile for you on on your behalf. The sacred crocodile of Crocodopolis. They really like. I love to go there. I think that would be on my on my list of things to visit. Would they have been sailing down the Nile on um, boats like like tourists do today, so stopping yes, off? Yes, and there are, there are lots of accounts all through um, through the centuries of people making very fancy trips um, along the Nile, and there are sort of rather marvelous mosaics, both in Italy and 
and from Egypt and Africa of, the, of these boats on the Nile of all sorts, both ferry boats and, and beautiful lavish of houseboats with decks, roofs and cushions and whatever. And yes, yeah, so I think it's, it's a very, very lovely thing to do. However, for Hadrian, it's rather catastrophic because his lover Antinous actually drowns in the Nile um, later in that year in, in October, I think it is. And so that, that's a personal disaster for Hadrian. And do we know how it happened? Was he swimming or did he fall off the boat? Or... I'm not sure. I think, I, I think it's a bit of a mystery. I have to check that. Was he pushed off the boat? <laughs> but I, I think it is a, actually it is a mystery. I don't think anyone really knows. And, and so there are all sorts of conspiracy theories actually about it, about what happened. Yeah, exactly. Was he pushed is, is one theory. Mm. <laughs> I mean, someone was jealous or not. Well, it's always a possibility in the Roman Empire, isn't it? <laughs> but thereafter, um, Hadrian um, actually then found cities in his honour. So the, there's Antinopolis. I think there, there's more than one Antinopolis around the place and there, there are there's all sorts of um, busts of, of him in his honour. And so this trip for Hadrian was combining, you know, an official visit and a, a sort of as a work, as, as it were, but also a holiday. Is that is that right? Um, I'm not sure that he would have thought of it as a holiday um, in the sense that we think of, of holidays now because... Um, he was actually, as he travelled, he was um, visiting cities and checking up on, on things, receiving delegations from legations from all, all over the place. On this trip, he possibly, it's not recorded, but it's very likely that he maybe officially found the city which replaced Jerusalem, which is obviously a very controversial move. And so he certainly he visits he visits Jerusalem and Palestina, Judea. If Bronwyn's book has inspired you to explore the Roman world for yourself, our partners Ace Cultural Tours may have just the holiday for you. Ace has over sixty years of experience in group cultural travel, and they offer a wide selection of historical and archaeological itineraries. Their schedule for 2022 and 2023 features tours covering the span of the Roman Empire across all points of the compass, from Algeria to Albania, Anglesey to Anatolia. ACE's tour to the heart of Rome will focus on the imperial period and includes a visit to the fascinating city of Ostia Antica, once the bustling port of Rome. Closer to home, a summer trip to the magnificent remains of Hadrian's Wall will take in sites including Vindolanda, where the famous writing tablets were uncovered. What better way to delve into the past than to follow in the footsteps of those who came before us? Find out more about travelling through time with ACE via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk Great. So let's go to your third and final scene now. And we are heading back to join Severus on his epic journey. And he's um, finally reaching his destination. And the white cliffs of Dover, possibly, are coming into view. And he's arriving in um, Britannia. Yeah. Well, by whatever means or however he got from his 
his province um, of Moesia on the shores of the Black Sea, whether it was via Rome and Ostia, whether it was um, along the Danube, he would have arrived and possibly met up with his his sort of fellow officials with with Agrippa and and with Natalis at Boulogne, where which is the headquarters of the British fleet, which sails between uh, which sails along the Channel and between Boulogne and Dover. And there were all sorts of rules about entering a province as a new governor. And so he was not allowed to actually dress up in his official, which would have been military uniform, and and have his sort of office until he'd actually got to Britannia and because I suppose it would have been seen as a sort of rather dangerous thing um, beforehand just crossing provinces. Anyway he goes and he's he's probably sails to Richborough which although it's quite a small port there's well Tupii it has this great um, huge victory arch um, which was built by Domitian um, at the time that Agricola actually got up to Scotland and conquered Scotland in, in 83-84. And so it's probably here that um, Severus is officially welcomed into the province of Britannia. And this is quite near Thanet, is that right? That's where Claudius um, launched his um, invasion of Britain in, in 43 Okay, well, hopefully we can put some of your maps on the on your on the website for people to see. But anyway, so so just very swiftly because we I know we we haven't got much time on this journey, and so Severus would have gone up to London, where he his headquarters was. It's also the the place where the procurator, who was in charge of all the finances, um, had a palace, um, and then he would have gone on various tours of Britain around the province. But it's possible because we think there's a lot of trouble um, up in the north that he might have gone absolutely straight up to Hadrian's Wall. Um, I think there's there's evidence that the actual building of the wall caused huge disturbances um, in northern Britain, um, quite unsurprisingly, because it just um, imposed this the arbitrary line along the narrowest neck of land, which just cut through native land holdings and severed families and quite important estates, um, British estates, um, from one from the other. And so it's about this time that we hear of previously unknown tribes sort of gathering in, in what's now Scotland. And it's thought that possibly these are disaffected Britons who have been displaced by the wall and by really the imposition of this huge military zone with these, what, 10,000 soldiers along it. Well, walls do tend to cause problems, don't they? And can you just describe a bit what the wall was made up of? How What would it have looked like? I know there was a huge ditch on on the northern side, wasn't there? The, the wall underwent various changes over the, over the years, but by 130, um, it's one of the reasons why I chose this date, it's pretty much completed in, in the kind of form that we understand it. Um, the western side is still built of turf up to Badazor, so, so just up to a little bit east of Carlisle. Um, it's a turf wall, but um, the rest of it, to the mouth of the t- time, is made of stones. But it's, as you say, there's a huge ditch um, to the north of the wall, 
with then a flat between the ditch and the wall, there's also this sort of flat space called a berm, which has all sorts of sort of the equivalent of barbed wire, sort of nasty little iron spikes um, in it to deter anyone from attacking from the north. But also, interestingly, on the south of the wall, um, there's also what's called a vallum, which is kind of an earthwork with ditches either side of it, which is also kind of huge, huge piece of, of work. And so the only way of actually getting north or south then is through forts along the wall, and there are about 16 forts along the wall. And um, between the forts, there are mile castles, every Roman mile. So it's hugely, hugely manned, just a, a, a massively imposing um, structure. And really, the, by, by this time, Britain and the south of Britain doesn't really have there's a fort in London but apart from that there's the south is really unmilitarized Wales has a legion but in, in fact the um the building of the wall means that um the legion in um near Newport in Curlian in Wales um and in Chester at Dover have come up to the wall to help build it but it's not obviously it's not a question of just building it and then the soldiers just sitting around and, and guarding it they have all sorts of duties up there, so they're, they're engineers and they're gathering um, all sorts of produce from from the north, and um, which will supply armies at their own army and and themselves gathering taxes and, and whatever. So there's sort of huge amount of work. So the legions aren't just there as soldiers um, fighting, as, as you might think, or defending. They're actually employed in in the work of um, of both running, helping to run the province and arguably to fleece the province of um, natural resources. But there were also big settlements, weren't there, of towns that with civilians, non-soldiers, women. Well, the um, in terms of in terms of Hadrian's Wall, there are little settlements um, called Vicus, Viki, where the soldiers could. Um, when they're not when they're not stationed, when they're not in barracks, could go and relax. So there are sort of pubs there, and there are women. At that time, that the, the um, soldiers aren't allowed actually officially to marry, although they do. They have concubines and they do have children, but they're legally they they can't marry. So only the um, commanding officer is able to marry and sort of bring his wife and children, which must actually have made it quite lonely for the for the officers' wives. Mm. Which I think that um, is something makes that invitation that we talked about earlier that much more poignant. Absolutely. So they can only talk to people of their own social status who are who are at far flung forts. Yeah. And before I ask you the last question, um, can you tell us a little bit about the Dacians briefly? Because I know that you're involved in a really exciting project at the moment. So. Um, just tell us about that briefly. Right. Well, um, I'm I'm particularly interested in the Dacians because, along with the classical world, the Romania is one of my lifelong passions, and so it was um, with absolute great delight, if not astonishment, when I first went up and visited Berdoswald when I was at English Heritage that I discovered that there'd been a whole cohort of Dacians, a thousand strong, um, stationed there. And that they'd they'd in fact been in Britain since the con- the, the Trajan's conquest of Dacia um, shortly after that, between one hundred two and one hundred 
105, 106. And they come over here and they left their mark in all sorts of interesting ways. So not just by, by their recorded on building inscriptions and their names um, appear in all sorts of places, scratched on pieces of Samian ware or um, recorded that they helped build the Vallum, for example. But there's one piece of evidence at Bud Oswald, which is a building inscription, which they um, record that, I th that they, I think, rebuilt a granary. And on either side of it, there's um, an image of their very distinctive carved knife, which is um, not exactly like, yes, it's carved knife rather than a, a scythe called a, a falx. And a palm frond, which appears in, in Dacian decorations, like in their jewellery. And this is actually the only evidence anywhere, really, in the empire that the Dacians somehow retained some sort of link or image to their homeland, some em emblem. So it's it's very precious. And particularly this, this falx, this curved weapon is shown that there are depictions of the Dacians on Trajan's column, which commemorates the, celebrates the, conquest of, of Dacia finally um, took place in 106 and there they are with these these curved weapons and there is their king Decebal Decabalus um, who commits suicide with this this weapon rather than be taken prisoner by the Romans um, and it's also very noteworthy that they're calling them their, their children um, Decabalus Decebal this king in in Britain and and indeed else, elsewhere in the empire. So I'm I'm I was very taken and interested with this and intrigued by it. And the project, in fact, which I am involved in now, is working with Romanians in the northwest because in the last twenty years, a huge number of Romanians have have come to live and work up here, and so we're involved in a in a I'm running a writing project looking at the experiences of the Dacians then and the Romanians now. What a wonderful idea. I love that. <laughs> that's probably not part of this talk, but it is it is very exciting and interesting. I think that sounds great. That sort of li living history, making the connections. Wonderful. Well, there remains just one question to ask you, which is, of course, if you could have picked something up or taken something from one of the places that we've visited today, what would it be? Well, it's super hard just to choose one thing. So I might have to be really greedy. Um, I don't know if that's allowed. <laughs> yeah, of course it is. <laughs> well, there were these special souvenir cups that were made of Hadrian's Wall that um, it's thought they that they were made specially for soldiers um, to take wherever wherever they they later went to commemorate their time there, and they're very interesting and and rather beautiful. They were enameled, lots of lovely swirling, colourful enamel patterns, which is actually quite British, a British form of decoration as opposed to uh, a Roman one. So they're a sort of a lovely amalgam of. of of Roman and, and British art with the names of the forts on. And there, there's one which has um, the name of Banner, which was the Bird Oswald Fort, um, where the Dacians were actually stationed for a very long time, maybe well over 100 years. Um, and so I particularly like that one. It's at the, the original is in 
was in Anik, but a lot of the enamel has come off. So I'd love to see it in its pristine condition. But there are also other things, so that we don't have any record of, of the British, any sort of British songs or poetry or stories as they, it was a completely oral culture. And so I just wonder if someone, maybe some sort of very learned Greek secretary serving summer had, had gone like sort of Greek antiquary and um, and written down, recorded something of the of the poetry of the of the British and somewhere in some bookshop maybe in London there would be a copy to to buy. Um, the other thing there are very few things that, that were really um, seen as as luxury products from Britain but one of them was uh, wool so wool and cloth cloth and so British cloaks and, and kind of tweed was um, sort of very highly regarded. So it would be quite nice to to have some textiles as so little, especially as so little survives from that time. We only have tiny faded scraps. It'd be rather wonderful to have an entire garment. Well, that's interesting because that's still the same today, isn't it? Our woolen textiles, Harris tweed, all that kind of um, I think they're great choices. I don't know whether um, our producer is going to allow all three of them to remain in, but I hope so. Um, I love the, the sound of the mug. It's like a Jubilee, Queen's Jubilee mug, isn't it? Exactly the same idea. So funny. Um, Bronwyn, thank you so much for being a guest on Travels Through Time. I've really, really loved chatting to you today. That was me, Violet Muller, speaking to Bronwyn Riley the other day about her brilliant book, Journey to Britannia, from the heart of Rome to Hadrian's Wall, AD 130, which is out now in paperback. Please check out her episode page on our website, tttpodcast.com, where there are some links and recommendations of places to visit on the wall, as well as the usual images and other information. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>